Well, my name is Adam. If we haven't met, it's great to be with you today and to look at this uh, passage from God's Word. Uh, If you weren't here last week, we kicked off a a new sermon series called Who is Jesus? For the next uh, eight weeks or so, we'll be in Matthew uh, chapters 8 to 12, and we'll be looking at Jesus in action. We're going to be exploring what Jesus said and what Jesus did to help us discover who Jesus is and why it matters for you and for me. And today, we're going to be talking about the cost of following Jesus. Now, maybe you've heard the saying, the best things in life are free. The best things in life are free. It's meant to uh, communicate to us the reality that the best things in life are the things that money can't buy. Family, friends, laughter, sunshine, swimming at the beach, unless you go to Noosa, then you've got to pay for parking. The best things in life are free. And the same is true when it comes to Christianity. The good news of Christianity is that it's free. Salvation is a gift from God. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we can buy. It's a gift given to us by God, to all who place their trust in Jesus. Let me just give you two examples from the Bible. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then right at the end of the Bible, right at the end, in Revelation chapter 22, we read this. Come, God's word says, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. The good news of Christianity is that it is free. But we have another saying, don't we? And it goes like this, nothing in life is free. And it's meant to communicate to us the reality that everything in life that is worth doing has a cost, requires effort. So to graduate from high school, to advance in your career, to build a business, to raise kids, to have healthy friendships, to be part of a church community, All of these things are good things, and all of them require effort. They have a cost. And again, the same is true when it comes to following Jesus. Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 16, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so following Jesus is not a life of self-indulgence. It's a life of self-denial. Jesus doesn't say, take up your couch and follow me. He says, take up your cross and follow me. And so following Jesus, belonging to Jesus, is both free and costly. Salvation is a gift from God that's free, and yet it's going to cost you everything. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be looking at this reality. In fact, the the title of today's sermon is, What Does It Cost to Follow Jesus? Now, if you're a Christian, 
this might be a good reminder that real Christianity is costly. Maybe your journey of following Jesus isn't really costing you anything. And you might have to ask yourself, why? Or maybe you're not a Christian. And this is going to be a good introduction to what following Jesus means. You know, Jesus is very upfront about the cost, isn't he? Uh, Jesus, we might say, is not like uh, so many of our politicians. They're very upfront about the promises, very clear about the promises, but not so clear about the cost. Prefer to hide the cost in the fine print. Jesus does the opposite. He's very clear about the promises, very open about the promises, but he's also very clear about the cost. He's also very open about what it will cost you to follow him. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. What does it cost to follow Jesus? And we're going to think it through in just two simple steps, through the the two conversations that Jesus has with these two different people. And what we're going to see in the first conversation in verses 18 to 20 is the reality check we need. And then the second conversation, we'll see the invitation that we can't put off. So firstly, let's look at the first conversation, which is the reality check we need. Now, as this passage begins, we're told that Jesus was surrounded by a crowd. Now, this shouldn't be very surprising to us because you sure, I'm sure you remember what happened last week in the first half of chapter 8. Jesus healed three different people, a leper, a Roman soldier's servant, and even Peter's mother-in-law we saw last week. Now, Jesus, after miraculously healing these three different people, word had obviously spread. And Jesus uh, had obviously become popular and the crowds had flocked to him. But Jesus didn't come to call a crowd of interested spectators. Jesus came to call wholehearted followers. Jesus came to call devoted disciples. And this is what he wants to make very clear in this first conversation. We're told in verse 19 that a scribe came to Jesus. Now, a scribe was basically an expert in the Scriptures, uh, basically a Bible teacher or a Bible scholar. Now, normally, when these guys show up in the New Testament, they're not very fond of Jesus. But this guy is different. He's amazed with Jesus. Uh, Look what he says, verse 19. Teacher, notice that he calls him teacher, not Lord, like Uh, the leper and the Roman soldier last week. Teacher, he says, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this is a good thing. I mean, this is the way the Bible describes true Christians. Revelation 14 says uh, they follow the lamb, they follow Jesus wherever he goes. So this is a good thing. The problem is that he hasn't really thought it through. He's a a little bit like the the story I heard recently. Uh, Simon Manchester is a retired minister in Sydney, and he was once swimming in the surf, and next to him was this huge man. And across his back, he had a big tattoo that said, In God's Hands. And so Simon, the retired minister, said to him, Well, I like your tattoo. And to which the big man replied, Well, I'm just starting to take all of this seriously. To which Simon said he thought to himself, didn't say out loud, but thought to himself, 
Well, that's quite a big commitment to get a tattoo in God's hands across your back when you're only just starting to take God seriously. And this is kind of what this scribe is doing. He's saying to Jesus, I am totally with you without really thinking what it means. Now, let's be honest. We can do the same thing as well, can't we? I can't tell you how many times I've been in church and sung the hymn, I surrender all. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Saviour, I surrender all. Really? Do I? Have I? I'm not so sure. It's so easy for us to come to church and to sing these songs. So easy to say these types of things. But Jesus wants us to help, help us to really think it through. He wants to help this scribe to really think it through. And so he says to him, verse 20, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now notice that Jesus doesn't reject this man. He doesn't say, you know what you're talking about, get away from me. Doesn't reject him, but he does give him a reality check. This scribe probably thought, he probably heard lots of things about Jesus, probably thought he was hitching his wagon to a powerful and influential teacher. He probably thought, this Jesus guy is going to help me. He's going to take me places. He's going to help my career. And of course, Jesus could do all of these things, but not the way the scribe was thinking. And so Jesus gives him a reality check. Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, says to him, I don't even have a place of my own to lay my head down to sleep at night. Jesus, as one commentator says, was devoid of all middle-class security. You know, all of the things which we care so much about, our homes, our wardrobes, our holidays, our cars, our superannuation, Jesus had none of it. And he's saying to this scribe, if you want to follow me, you should expect the same. You should be prepared to walk the same path. Now, it's not that owning a home is wrong. It's not that having possessions is sinful or that being comfortable is a bad thing. But the question is, the question that I think Jesus is trying to get this scribe and us to think through is, are they more important to you than me? Are they more of a priority in your life than me? Are you willing to give them up for me? I recently read The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Boom. I'm sure many of you are familiar with, with Corrie's story. It's a it's just an incredible book, and I would encourage you to read it. Ten Booms were an incredible Christian family. Uh, Corrie uh, was a, a lady who lived in Holland during World War II. Uh, she lived with her old, old aged father, Caspar, and her sister, Betsy. And because they were followers of Jesus, they decided to hide Jews in their home during World War II in occupied Holland. They actually had a, a kind of a, a hidden room built in their home where they could hide them. 
But eventually, as often happened, they were betrayed and they were arrested. And while they were being interrogated, the chief interrogator actually offered to send Casper home because he was so old at that stage. He looked at him, he said, what are you doing here? I mean, you, you can go home. He said to him, look, I'll, I'll send you home as long as you promise to cause no more trouble. Casper replied and said, if I go home today, tomorrow, I will open my door again to any man in need who knocks. Casper was willing to follow Jesus no matter where it led him, even if it meant prison and death. And Casper did die a few weeks later. Ray Ortland puts it this way. He says, if we're going to follow Jesus, the only thing we can absolutely count on is Jesus. Is that okay? Or are we saying, I'm here in church today for him to bless my expectations and my plans? I want Jesus, but I want him on my own terms. So what about you? What about me? Am I a Fairweather fan of Jesus or a follower of Jesus? Do I follow Jesus, obey Jesus when it suits me? When I have spare time? when it doesn't cost me? Or do I follow him wherever he leads me? Do I just want Jesus to support my plans? Or am I okay if he rewrites my plans? Am I willing to follow Jesus into hard places? Into to the lives of, of people who, who are hurting? Into loving the unlovable? Am I willing to sacrifice my dreams, my desires? Am I willing, in other words, to take up my cross to follow Jesus? These are the hard questions that, that you and I, as followers of Jesus, have to wrestle with. This is the reality check that we need. It will cost us to follow Jesus. It will cost us popularity, it will cost us time, it will cost us convenience, it will cost us comfort, it will cost us money. It might even, like Casper Ten Boom and like millions of other Christians through the years, cost us our life. Now, if you're not a Christian, it's not much of a sell, is it? Come to Jesus, you won't be popular, it'll cost you money, you might even die. Where do I sign up? So I guess the question is, why do we do it? Why do we follow Jesus if it's so costly? And if you're a Christian, I hope the answer is obvious. We do it because we get Jesus. The best thing about Christianity is Christ. The greatest gift of Christianity is Christ. We get him and all that he is and all that he has, his forgiveness, his guidance, his power, his, his encouragement, his protection, his word, his presence for all eternity. He is our prize. Reminds me of a, a faithful Christian who lived in England in the 17th century 
And because he was a Bible-believing Christian at that time, um, what he had something happen to him that happened to a lot of people. He had all of his possessions taken away from him, except, as the story goes, for a piece of bread and a glass of water. And reportedly, this Christian, looking at you know, these meager provisions in front of him, said this. He said, what? All this? And Jesus too? Now, let me just say, this is the real problem with the prosperity gospel. You know, this teaching that says in this life, God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. The problem is that it makes Jesus a means to an end. Come to Jesus and you'll get, you know, fill in the blank. You'll get healthy, you'll get wealthy, you'll get whatever. You don't come to Jesus to get stuff. You come to Jesus to get Jesus. Because he's so good, he's so glorious, he's so gracious. He is worth more than anything else in the world. Reminds me of the hymn uh, by a man named Fernando Ortega, which, which is called Give Me Jesus. The chorus very simply says, Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And so here's the reality check I need, and maybe here's the reality check that you need as well. It will cost you to follow Jesus, but the best news of all is that you get Jesus. And this is the first conversation that, that Jesus has here in Matthew 8, the reality check that we need. And it brings us to the second conversation, which is the invitation we can't put off. See, in verse 21, Jesus is approached by another man. Uh, we're told that this one was uh, one of the disciples. Now, this doesn't mean that he was one of the 12 disciples, but rather he was kind of part of the crowd that had been following Jesus around the place. He'd made some kind of commitment to Jesus. But now he has a problem. Before he goes any further with Jesus, he wants to hit the pause button. Look at uh, verse 21. Lord, he says, let me first go and bury my father. Now, sounds like a good reason, doesn't it? I mean, if you asked your boss for some time off to go and bury your father, you would expect that he would say yes. And you would expect that Jesus is going to say yes. Look what he says, verse 22. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now tell us what you really think, Jesus. I mean, this seems a bit harsh and insensitive, doesn't it? doesn't seem Jesus, you know, kind and gracious. But there's more going on here than, than we kind of Westerners realize. Uh, most Bible scholars will suggest that this man's father was not actually dead. Uh, because this expression that he uses, to go and bury my father, it was, uh, scholars say, a common saying in that day. It was a common expression which meant, I need to go and look after my parents. I need to go and fulfill my duties as a son until which time I bury them and receive the inheritance. It was a request, in other words, to kind of postpone discipleship, to, to put off following Jesus. This man was saying to Jesus, I'll follow you, Jesus, but not yet. I have some other obligations. I have some other responsibilities. And when I've 
completed them, then I'll come and I'll follow you. And so if the first guy was too quick to follow Jesus, this second guy was too slow. If the first guy failed to count the cost, this second guy failed to recognize the urgency. And again, we can do the same thing, can't we? Maybe you're a young person and you're thinking, well, I'll take Jesus seriously, but not yet. I've got plenty of time. I'll worry about that when I'm older. Or maybe you've got young kids and you've kind of thought to yourself, well, I'll wait until the kids get a little bit older. You know, I'll wait until they're older to get really serious about Jesus. I'm just so busy at the moment. I've got so much on. We just need to prioritize the kids at the moment. We'll make Jesus a priority later. Or maybe you're at the other end and and your kids are older, they've grown up, they've left home and you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, I can probably back off a little bit now. I I was mainly involved at church for them. I wanted them to have, you know, uh, Christian values, but now they've grown up, now they've left home, I might take a little bit more time for myself. I'll get serious about Jesus when I'm closer to the end. Whatever it might look like, we can all be tempted to delay discipleship to put off following Jesus with all of our hearts. And so Jesus has some blunt advice for this man and for you and for me. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, it's a ridiculous statement, isn't it? I mean, how does a dead person bury another dead person? And the answer is they can't and they don't. Jesus seems to be talking about the spiritually dead, those who are not alive to God, those who have not come to him. And what he seems to be saying to this disciple is let the spiritually dead take care of worldly matters. Let them take care of worldly business and concerns. You've got more pressing concerns. You you need to put the kingdom of God first. You need to prioritize following me. In other words, Jesus is saying, nothing can come before your allegiance to me your loyalty to me, not even good things like taking care of a parent. It's not that we don't do those things, but Jesus is saying those things cannot come before your loyalty to me. Jesus must come before everything else is the point of what he's saying, which is an amazing thing for someone to say, isn't it? Unless... They were God with us. Reminds me of a story. I recently read um, another book called Everything Sad is Untrue. It's written by a man named Daniel Nayeri. It's basically the story of Daniel's life, but it's written from the perspective of when he was a young boy. Now, Daniel was born in Iran, and he lived in Iran for the first few years of his life. But while he was still a young boy, his mum and his sister became Christians, which meant they had to flee Iran, um, and they fled to Oklahoma in the United States. Now, in Iran, Daniel's mum was actually a Saeed, which means she was a descendant of Muhammad, which means she was very wealthy and very comfortable, which means it was a monumental cost for her to follow Jesus. It was basically, or it was, a death sentence. Daniel writes this in the book. 
He says, when I tell the story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up to that point, I've told them about the house with the birds in the walls, all the villages my grandfather owned, all the gold, my mum's own medical practice, all the amazing things she had that we don't have anymore because she became a Christian, all the money she gave up, so we're poor now. But I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say what my mum says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope that they'll hear her, and she says, because it's true. It's true, and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs of Yolfa and even maybe your life. My mum wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else. See, Seema, Daniel's mum, got it. She understood real Christianity. She understood that Jesus is better. She understood that the greatest gift of Christianity is Christ himself. He's worth more than anything else. He's worth giving up anything for. He's worth following anywhere. What about you? What about me? What about us? Now, if you'd honestly say, well, you know, I haven't come to Jesus that way, or I'm not sure if I have, well, here's what you don't do. You don't look to yourself you don't walk out these doors in, in just a little while and think to yourself, I need to try harder. I need to get my act together. I need to sort myself out. I need to get to work. It won't work. It won't last. You need to look to Christ. If you want to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, you need to see how he has loved you wholeheartedly. If you want to follow him no matter the cost, you need to see the cost that he has paid for you. The lengths that he has gone to for you. He crossed the cosmos for you. He became like you. He served you. He even died for you. He gave up everything he had to give you everything he has. He emptied himself to fill you for all eternity. He took all your sin to give you all his righteousness. He absorbed all your judgment to give you every spiritual blessing. And when you see this Jesus, when you see what he has done for you, there's only one way to respond, and it's to give everything to him, to give yourself to him. Love, so amazing. Love, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, 
my all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these blunt, loving, life-giving words. Thank you that you have held nothing back from us so that we might hold nothing back from you. Lord, help us to gaze upon the costly love of Jesus so that we might follow him no matter the cost. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.